Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data center podcast brought to you by the team at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray and Senior Reporter Natalie Bannerman. We are also joined later in the episode by Evo Ivanov, the CEO of DKIX International, and we'll be catching up with Evo very, very soon. Um, but before that, we're going to cover the biggest stories from last week, of which there have been many. Um, so to kick off, a quick roundup of the headlines. One web backer, SoftBank, has started to unify and coordinate all of its non-terrestrial connectivity solutions, which include satellite, balloon, and aircraft-mounted platforms into a single strategy. Dell Technologies has launched a suite of solutions to help CSPs maximize 5G deployments and edge. They include cloud-native network infrastructure and open telecom ecosystem lab and new reference architectures for edge core and open RAN. A subsidiary of private equity firm Asterion Industrial Partners is launching a full buyout offer to acquire Italian telco Retalit in a deal worth more than 569 million US dollars. And Bloomberg has completed a new 300 mile circuit across Missouri, taking its total network to 10,000 miles of fiber as well as two data centers. And Everstream has completed its acquisition of Unity boosting Everstream's network by 35% and extending it over the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, including Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and more than 10 additional cities. Meanwhile, on the appointments front, Cecilia London has stepped down from Telia Company, where she held the role of Executive VP and Head of People, Experience, and Culture. Seraphim Capital has appointed the former Director General of the European Space Agency, Jan Warmer, to, as a Senior Advisor and Member of its Advisory Board. And Paul Kogan, the CCO of Colt, who succeeded Kerry Gilder last year, has been appointed president of EU Networks. Um, according to her LinkedIn post, she will start that job in November. And Ofcom has appointed Sasha Yogia from Amazon as its new chief technology officer. Um, and of course, on Tuesday, June the 8th, somebody broke the internet. Um, we're yet to find out who, but a software bug hit fastly, um, bringing down a number of websites. Now, we spoke to Evo about this, more on that later, but the general consensus here is that CDNs are very cool, but massively vulnerable, um, considering how much of the global connectivity landscape depends on them. Um, so what does this mean for an increasingly digital dependent world? And do we think it will lead to any changes in how the global infrastructure is, is kind of planned? Um, guys, what do you think? So from my perspective, I think it's um, it also raises a question about um, kind of, you know, some of the big companies and organizations kind of using the same provider for CDNs. Because uh, if I remember correctly, you know, when the story broke, there was a lot of uh, rumors about it possibly being um, an AWS uh, fault, you know, um, in the cloud, because obviously um, most of these uh, prominent uh, companies use AWS. Um, I think for me, it's, it's more about, you know, having um, that kind of network redundancy. You know, we think about redundancy particularly in things like subsea cables and having you know um you know loop-based um, systems in case there's a fault on on, on that particular um, segment of a cable and you know being able to continue services so maybe we need added um, redundancy in the kind of cdn space as well you know just in case things like this happen again in the future exactly because i think the bbc site uh, bbc.co.uk and presumably bbc.com came back up really quickly because they got a backup which sounds very sensible and i noticed the bbc was the first of the major of news sites to come back um capacitymedia.com was unaffected we we carried on regardless um but uh things like the financial times the guardian lots of us papers they all were down for 
about an hour. So I think there's a, a good comparison to be done in coming days to find out what the BBC did that was right and what the others did that was wrong. Um, and that might really change people's strategy over the next year or two. Mm, yeah, both very good points. I mean, as Natalie said, there is the infrastructure element um, and the kind of global architecture that needs to be looked at with the redundancy. Um, but yeah, I mean, from a client perspective, is this in the service level? Well, I mean, obviously, outages are in the service level agreements, um, but those backups, you know, should they be provided by the CDN or? Hmm. And it's interesting that, you know, Amazon was affected as well, even though, you know, AWS apparently was not to blame, but it was a, a third party. So, you know, even Amazon looked, needs to look to its resilience in there. Um, problem is offering, you know, so running things on other people's equipment and networks and services. Uh, it might give resilience, but it also gives problems if you if things happen. Maybe they're just too few people, uh, two companies in the business uh, offering CDN type services. It's all consolidated a bit much, which is the story of the industry, I think. Yes, and that theme is going to come back with a vengeance in a very short amount of time. And Natalie does a subsea roundup um, because this week we've um, obviously had the telegeography map, which shows a huge concentration um, in who's actually. Um, launching new subsea projects. Um, but just coming back to the Fastly um, outage, I mean, is it better or worse that it was a software fault rather than, you know, a, an attack of some description? I think given that everything is kind of being made software based is is probably a little bit scary for some companies who are kind of sitting on the on the fence in terms of digital transformation and, and transitioning things from, you know, hardware into software. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't I haven't um, seen specifically what the, the fault was, but um, I think everything these days, it's all about, you know, protecting every element of your attack surface. And um, from what I've written about CDNs in the past, I'm not too familiar with what kind of uh kind of protocols or frameworks are in place to secure it but um i certainly think it's probably a probably a bit of an easy target if we think about you know the kind of robust protection that we put in place with things like you know fiber fiber and data centers and things like that so perhaps it's just the weak link you know and we, we're not paying enough attention to it i wonder if it's going to give ideas to uh what the industry likes to call the bad guys suddenly you know they've I uh, when when it first things first went down, I thought, oh, it's a DDoS attack, uh, distributed denial of service, and obviously it wasn't. But suddenly, maybe somebody can throw a switch wrongly in a CDN, or whatever happened, and bring down a big chunk of our new services. Then <laughs> and government services, gov.uk went down, all sorts of other things, um, on which people rely. You know, as somebody said, if somebody was going through a, a port into the UK and wanted to prove using a web service that they had a right to uh, live in the UK, they would be stuck in a queue until the service came back. Um, so it does have real consequences, and it probably lost Amazon uh, millions and millions of dollars in that short period of time. Um, but if if it's, yeah, as you say, Natalie, is if, if it's so easy to happen, um, then maybe the bad guys are going to start saying, oh, look, we've got something else to play with to bring down networks. 
It's a very interesting point, actually, because there was the orange outage um, in France the week before, and France has told its cybersecurity watchdog to conduct an audit of its whole network after the outage blocked emergency calls for several hours. Um, so, yeah, these vulnerabilities across networks and, again, the concentration of, um, of providers is definitely going to be a recurring theme, which brings us nicely into a diversity um, special for next issue, but we'll plug that later on. Um, but anyway, um, Natalie, on that note, um, let's hear about some of the bigger stories from last week. Um, and again, what's been happening in subsea? Yeah, so um, starting off with uh, Superloop, the company has confirmed its intent to acquire uh, Exitel, which is an Australia internet service provider for um, $110 million. Uh, according to the company, the deal has been funded by a fully underwritten capital raise uh, and will support and um, support from um, Superloop's banks. Uh, once completed, the acquisition will actually increase Superloop's revenue uh, by more than double to a pro forma figure of $261 million. Uh, also, so the company's pro forma EBITDA is uh, expected to benefit from an increase of 89% to approximately uh, $34 million. This includes uh, savings of about $5 million per annum um, in network synergies. Uh, at the time, Exitel CEO uh, Richard Purdy uh, has been confirmed to continue to lead Exitel for a transition period, reporting to Superloop uh, CEO Paul Tyler. Both brand names will also continue. Um, and as for the division of services, Exitel will continue to provide internet, phone and communication services, but its backhaul services will be migrated to Superloop's network. Um, this includes automated network capacity management. Uh, so a great deal. Um, and we'll obviously be watching to see how that integration goes ahead. Um, very recently, actually, in the UK, uh, Patrick Drahi, his uh, next alt, which is a holding company through its subsidiary Altus UK, has actually purchased a 12% stake in UK incumbent telco BT. Uh, the deal has been valued at about uh, 2.2 billion pounds, which is about $3.1 billion. The deal actually positions Altus UK um, and by extension uh, Drati um, as BT's biggest shareholder um, with the acquisition of about 1.2 billion shares. Uh, following the announcement, the uh, BT's share price actually jumped up 3% uh, to uh, 189 pence each um, as of uh, Thursday, the 10th of June, um, 9 a.m. So, Overall, Nextalt um, has actually ownership of about five different companies. Um, each, um, they say, is financially standalone and independent. Um, this includes Altus UK, Altus USA, Altus France, Altus International, Altus uh, Dominican Republic and Sotheby's, which is obviously the uh, global and luxury company. So, you know, in good company there. Um, Altus UK has actually been specially set up for this acquisition and will actually uh, is been um, uh, set up as the vehicle to hold these shares. Um, and in a statement, uh, the company said that it holds the boards and management team of BT in high regard and is supportive of their strategy. Uh, Altus UK has informed the BT board that it will not uh, make a takeover bid. And um, the key issue now uh, for them is how you know to un unlock the value. Uh, interestingly, uh, they also hinted at the fact that they would be encouraging BT to spin off its subsidiary OpenReach, which, as we know, is uh, the independent infrastructure unit here in the UK. Uh, so, you know, something that's probably been on the cards for a while and many analysts have kind of hinted to, but we'll see if Altus's uh, influence uh, really pushes this forward. 
Now, we actually have a, a number of announcements in the world of subsea, as you mentioned, Melanie. Uh, firstly, uh, the installation of the 700 kilometer NOUK subsea cable has officially commenced. Uh, it begins at the uh, Green Mountains Data Center and the system connects the west coast of Norway with Newcastle in the UK. Uh, and once completed, will you know significantly increase data capacity between those two points as well as the rest of the world. Uh, overall, work is due to complete by the end of the summer, with uh, the cable coming into full operation by the fourth quarter of this year. In other news, uh, Peace Cable International Network and PCCW Global have announced plans to deploy the Infinera ICE-6 optical engine solution on the Mediterranean segment of the Peace subsea cable. The optical engine solution will enable the Mediterranean segment of the cable uh, to transmit nearly uh, 25 terabits per fibre pair, uh, while at the same time uh, really preparing the system for you know, future scalability, flexibility and differentiation. Uh, the solution was selected uh, due to its capabilities, which actually includes the ability to uh, achieve commercially deployable performance with a combination of high bowed rates and uh, an advanced modulation technique known as long code word probabilistic constellation shaping. A uh, bit of a mouthful there. Um, and lastly, um, keeping with the subsea theme, Google has actually uh, confirmed that it has a contract out in force with Subcom for the, des for the design, manufacturing and deployment of Femina, which is a new high-speed uh, subsea cable connecting North and South America. Once live, the cable will run from the east coast of the US to Las Tonias in uh, Argentina, with an additional landings in Praia Grande in Brazil and Punta del Este in uh, uh, Uruguay. It features a 12 fibre pair trunk and uh, will actually improve access to Google services for users in South America. Uh, in addition, the system will also leverage Subcom's 18 uh, kV power um, technology, which actually means Fermina was designed to be the world's longest capable, um, capable of maintaining operations with a single end feed power, should there ever be um, a far end fault. Uh, Subcom has confirmed that it's going to manufacture the, the cable and the equipment um, in the US in its new facility in New Hampshire um, throughout the rest of 2021 and into early 2022. And the main lay installation operations are scheduled for the summer of 2022 due to go live at the end of 2023. But that's it from me. Fantastic. Thanks, Natalie. Um, well, let's talk about that BT deal first, um, because this isn't the um, the first time that there has been talk about um, a BT buyout. Um, guys, what was your kind of initial reaction to the news? I thought it was a, a, a staggering amount of money, <laughs> given uh. you know, we've, we've certainly commented on, you know, BT's kind of, you know, fledgling sales in various parts of its global services business. Um, so clearly there's a, you know, an opportunity, I think, given, you know, the fiber rollout that BT is going to be, you know, ramping up with OpenReach. Um, but yeah, it was a, a little bit of a shock for me. I mean, yeah, I, I wasn't thinking of a valuation quite that high, in my opinion. Mm. I agree. Um... I agree. It's uh, and of course it displaces uh, Deutsche Telekom as the biggest shareholder of in BT. Uh, it has been ever since it sold its stake uh, in what used to be Everything Everywhere EE, as it is now to BT. But it held on to the shares, uh, held on to the price in terms of shares. And since then, it's been really bad news for Deutsche Telekom because. Oh, way back five years ago or so, the BT share price was about five pounds. And as Natalie says, it's 
less than two pounds now. And if you look at the euro pound exchange rate, uh, they've really lost a lot of money. Um, but um, it's quite it is interesting. It maybe think maybe Drahi is doing it as a as a exercise because he thinks the share price will start going up. And in fact, if you look at the BT share price, it's been going down until from about four pounds back in 2016 down to a, a pound uh, in August last year, which is pathetic. Um, and it's been climbing slowly ever since and is, uh, yeah, as Natalie says, it's just under two quid now. Um, maybe he thinks he's going to make money on the shares, uh, but maybe he's just positioning himself. He's got a lot of, you know, he's the second biggest operator in France. He's also owns uh, what used to be Portugal Telecom. Um, and uh, he's been buying things all over the world. So, yeah, he's very big uh, operation. Um, SFR was his big first big French uh, business. Um, Sotheby's is a weird one, but uh, uh, very strange. And he's been selling off some fiber networks. So he's got experience of that. What Natalie says about OpenReach, uh, Altis, his French vehicle, sold off a big chunk of the fiber network to Morgan Stanley in 2019. Um, so, and he sold off, um, uh, yeah, that was two years ago. So it looks like it's quite uh, an interesting purchase and we will see what happens. I mean, I think two big powerful shareholders, uh, Deutsche Telekom and uh, Altis, or rather Drahi personally, I suppose, via a new subsidiary, is going to be making some noise on the in the BT boardroom. Um, they need to get their act together. Um, um, really, because they've been drifting for several years. They've lost their chairman, who said he's going to leave as soon as they find a new one, because uh, rumours have it there was an internal boardroom dispute between the chairman and the CEO. Uh, so they're looking for chairmen. So maybe the board obviously has a good way of influencing who the next chairman might be. So that's uh, interesting timing. That would be an interesting twist on the tail, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not convinced it's going to stay at 12%, to be honest with you. Um, I think we'll see what happens. But a lot of commentators are actually saying that an inter another interesting element of this story is that they're actually backing UK broadband rollout, which, as we all know, has not been the smoothest of all broadband rollouts. Um, and this comes at a time when there is huge talk about what, and also huge development on the satellite front. So, you know, how much of... Britain's future broadband will actually be delivered by fibre and open reach and all these other companies that have been mm. so busy the last few years. Um, and just a quick one on the share price as well. I mean, if it doesn't improve after this, I don't think it ever will. Uh, even Fastly's share price went up this week. Like, it's it's not difficult yes. to get a bit of um, positive sentiment out of the stock market right now. People are very fickle. Um, and any good news can put a company on the up, uh, even if it is only temporarily. I mean, well, everything's temporarily on the stock market. But um, I guess... I yeah, guess Fastly is because nobody in Wall Street had heard knew of Fastly before. <laughs> yeah, knew, and they said, oh, this is an interesting company. They're competing with Amazon and all the other guys. So isn't that interesting? Yeah, uh, if you awareness. Fast, yeah, like fast, Fastly's five-day rolling average for their share price, if you look at it at the moment, yeah. is quite insane considering what happened this week. Yeah. Um, 
but turn yeah. off the internet and make a profit right okay <laughs> <laughs> i wish we could do that take the day off um but and Natalie, coming back to your subsidy stories as well now and um, before we move on huge um huge project announcements there um and it's definitely all systems go isn't it i mean this raft of updates ties in very well with a story that alan wrote this week um which was on the telegeography subsea map um, now, they've identified $8 billion US dollars in new subsea cable investments over the next three years. Um, and their new map, which is now colorized, and we love it, um, shows 19 new cables with a combined length of 103,348 kilometers. Um, but the real takeaway is who's initiating these projects, because following in the footsteps of every other corner of the industry, as we have mentioned, it's Amazon, Google, Microsoft. So they accounted for less than 10% of total capacity prior to 2012, and that reached 66% last year. Google alone, as demonstrated, Natalie, in your roundup, has more than 15 subsea cable investments globally. Um, so what's our take on that? I mean, without, you know, wanting to sound a little bit flippant, but is anybody surprised? I mean, I think for me, no, you know, no, no, but when, because when it was, yeah, I mean, but, you know, any, you know, whenever we do our interviews and we speak to people in the industry and we talk about, you know, the biggest drivers of consumption, it's always content, whether that's mm -hmm. gaming, whether that's video, whether that's, you know, social media, it's all content, isn't it? So it would kind of make sense that, you know, it would be the kind of content providers or those who have, you know, big offerings in the content space to kind of, you know, go and, and really drive um, those projects. And of course, we, you know, we've spoken about it before, but it tends to be the content players um, more also that have the kind of cash to go ahead and, and do these projects on their own you know what I mean so I think um, it's not really surprising to me I think what will be interesting is you know a few years ago we were talking about you know the the emergence of the content players in the subsea space as that matures I would be interested to see how that relationship between the telcos and you know the content players you know as now owners of you know huge chunks of infrastructure are going to manage that relationship because interestingly when you speak to the content players they always build for a very specific purpose they always say they have no intention of kind of entering into the you know ISP space and you know they don't want to be regulated in that way and they don't want really the responsibilities and all those kind of things so it will be interesting to see as I mentioned you know as that increases what role then will the telcos play in those projects will they just be you know will it be more of a management kind of role you know what i mean because they don't really need to partner with them anymore not really yeah. um so that's what i would find most interesting kind of over the coming years but yeah hardly surprising in my view do you think natalie that the traditional telcos who always used to own the subsea cables either as cooperations between different operators around the world or uh, a sort of sole venture do you think they just lost it they've lost the contact with where the real market is and they're still still thinking of a voice world where you need a cable between uk and america because uh, and instead the geography has changed because it's connecting data centers to connect hyperscalers and deliver content now and, and they just haven't noticed um, i I think they have noticed it almost felt to me you know when we were talking about it you know very early on and as I mentioned when they were kind of emerging in the space it was kind of that tumultuous relationship where it was kind of like their competition as opposed to kind of getting on side and really finding a place within those plans um that's what I kind of noticed and I think um 
it's still a little bit of that going on you know they kind of partner with them but yeah I think from you know from a a content provider's perspective if they've got the money to build it themselves why would they need to give you 50% or two fiber pairs or do you know what I mean they 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 kind of don't need to the only part they would kind of need the telcos for as I mentioned would be to kind of manage it because you know for the most part the content players want to continue just to create content it's very much out of a need um so yeah I think it was kind of just being late to the late to to catch on I think in some cases but the, the telcos particularly the mobile operators uh took a very hostile attitude to the over-the-top content companies didn't they so that didn't create a good collaborative scenario for well let's think where we need subsea cables to go next it was just they're stealing our customers which is what they said repeatedly and that's that just seems to be counterproductive they should have you know got into their boardrooms and talk to them about what they really wanted and seen how they could do it because yeah they have the expertise they've been doing it for 150 years or so yeah content is i appreciate all those points and fully agree with all of them um but content's very um it's very 2000s isn't it the next thing's going to be gaming so does anybody yeah. think that we are going to see the likes of ea building subsea cables next oh that's time, a good idea they're going to be the ones yeah. who have 66 percent of the capacity well i've certainly tried to speak to ea about it because i'm having the exact same thoughts so if they're listening please reach out to me um but i <laughs> think so and you know it's kind of yeah. you know at one point I'm, I'm kind of felt like i was talking about gaming every other week but it was kind of following a, a similar pattern where you know you, you can there. see it in like five years time you know why yeah. wouldn't they the the ownership model is suits them better so why wouldn't they um but yeah i think so watch this space we um we wait to see how that one turns out um might nip down to the bookies soon and put 10 pounds on that um, <laughs> well but, and i certainly uh, remember a few years ago huawei in the early days of the 5g uh, technology being rolled out huawei was absolutely adamant that the real driver for 5g was going to be gaming um local mm-hmm. gaming and Deutsche telecom was saying that as well because you've got the low latency uh it would be gaming uh, around the world would be driving this this new technology so yeah i think what you both say has got makes a lot of sense well let's see where it goes next um but staying with you alan um what's what have you been covering this week well it's been a busy week for colony capital or mark gansey uh who is the boss of colony capital one of the biggest investors in infrastructure around the world uh he owns for or rather the company owns uh fresh wave which is a wireless operator indoors and in venues in the UK, Highlander Brazil, which owns towers, as the name implies in Brazil, Vantage data centers, and 50% of Zeo they bought uh, as a joint venture with EQT, a Swedish investor last year. But uh, this week has been almost the busiest week on their agenda. Uh, They completed an acquisition of Boingo Wireless for $854 million big nearly a billion um that's a big step then uh, a couple of days later they offloaded 2.7 billion worth of non-digital assets basically there used to be a colony capital used to be a a real estate investor i mean buildings and you know fields and things like that um uh, which is how they got into towers and all that sort of stuff and data centers, because a lot of people in the data center business just regard it as real estate, just happen to have some servers in it and some rather exceptional power supplies. 
Um, so they offloaded, they did a deal with a, a US company called Fortress Investment um, to divest 2.7 billion worth of assets under management. So it's not 2.7 billion worth of deal. It, they manage shares for other people. Uh, but it was a payment of 535 million from Fortress to Colony Capital. And then, uh, then a day later, literally a day later, they said they're going to rename themselves. So Colony Capital and Digital Colony you know, on the 22nd of June is going to become Digital Bridge. Now, that might be a familiar name because uh, Mark Gansey's company originally was Digital Bridge uh, and they're just basically renaming it coming back. But the only difference is that digital and bridge just have a capital B in the middle and no space. So it's one word. Uh, but it's really just to mark that it's now very much a digital company investing in infrastructure around the world, mainly the US, main and, and Latin America and a lot in Europe. And they are starting to spread into Asia as well. But they've shifted 100 billion worth of uh, assets under management from what they call diversified, which is basically bricks and mortar to digital uh, over the next few months. And uh, wonderful bit of investment jargon. Now 80% rotated on a pro forma basis. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what that means. But basically, they've said goodbye, bricks and mortar and concrete and stuff like that. Uh, and they're really moving into digital infrastructure. Uh, no argument whatsoever. So that's an interesting move by Digital Bridge. Um, let's go to some sort of good and bad news next. Uh, Reliance uh, in Industries in India, the company that owns Geo, which has just emerged a few years ago and has just completely galvanized the rest of the Indian mobile operators into consolidating and shrinking from about nine to two. Um, they, as everyone knows, India has been really badly hit by COVID. Um, and yesterday they made a really generous offer, but sad that they have to, that they will, anybody uh, in their employ who dies of COVID, they will pay their salary for five years. In other words, if you, know, you earned a certain amount of money last month and then died, they will continue to pay that monthly salary for five years. And they will also pay... Uh, they will also make sure you they pay their children's tuition fees, their health insurance um, and uh, other costs as well for a long time to come, right until the children uh, graduate. Um, a very generous offer. It possibly shows that you know, India has been even bad, more badly hit than we, we expect. They also do a one million, a one off payment of one million rupees, which is thirteen thousand dollars or so to family members. So it's quite generous. Uh, and I don't know of any other company anywhere in the world that's sort of said that. Um, but it just shows uh, uh, generosity of spirit, I think, in what is an awful situation. And um, Beyond was um, a big company that own based in Amsterdam, but its big operations are in Russia, Ukraine, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Uzbekistan and Algeria, and I probably left out one or two as well. They made a big announcement today. Um, they had their AGM and they've appointed their co-CEO, Sergi Herrero, um, is a member of the board. He's going to stop being co-CEO at the end of June. He's going to be on the board and his job is going to look after the Vion Ventures. 
uh, which marks a change from the original position where each operating company had its own ventures division, which might do content, um, which might do gaming, which might do uh, competition with TikTok, uh, might do mobile money, um, and that's been very big in some of their territories. And they're going to all be concentrated into one big operation under Sergei called Vion Ventures. And the idea is that will almost be a private equity investor in, in mobile ventures. So it could buy some others. It could get into joint ventures with other investors to buy some businesses. And most importantly, I think it will transfer knowledge of ventures from one bit of the on to another. So if you're in Bangladesh, for example, where they have a really great uh, entertainment service, which is called Toffee. Uh, I'm not sure quite why it's called Toffee, but it's a good name. Um, and, and that looks like it might get uh, ported to Pakistan, to Algeria and to other places within the company. It was developed in-house on a you know, desktop within their operation in Bangladesh by a couple of bright software engineers and it's being taken into other territories and they're going to do that. Um, sometime they might even do share flotations of the ventures or the individual ventures in which they invest. It's all very new. Uh, Sajay uh, we're on Thursday. Thursday has only just joined the board, but that's his main task is going to be to pilot this new venture um, through the company. And I think the uh, final story in this uh, general, my roundup, a couple of security centers. Firstly, Huawei uh, has opened what it calls the largest global cybersecurity and privacy protection transparency center, which is a long word, a long phrase. Uh, it's based in China, in Dongguan, which is just north, I think, north of uh, Shenzhen, which is where Huawei is based. And it's trying to reassure uh, clients and operators and so on that it's got their security backs. Now, this is obviously comes after Huawei's been criticised hugely over the last few years um, for its security standards, mainly because of its software writing. Um, people were saying that it was a bit rough around the edges. Um, and obviously, some of the problems it's had, it's been excluded from a lot of markets particularly in the US, but then across a lot of Europe as well, because uh, people were suspicious of it, um, particularly under the Trump administration in the US, and that spread around the world. Um, Huawei, of course, denies it. And I think it's we're going to see that Huawei is going to try and reassure people that it's doing a lot on cybersecurity and that it's honest. Uh, it, of course, this is a Chinese lab. Uh, as far as I know, there isn't any sort of external verification of what they're doing, uh, which is probably uh, something that it needs to look at. Uh, but at the same time, we saw Joe Biden has taken the first step to undo some of the things that uh, Donald Trump did during his um, in, uh, administration. He writes uh, towards the last few months, uh, just before the election, um, this, uh, signed an executive order to ban TikTok, WeChat, Alipay, sorry, Alipay, um, and other apps, which sort of gathered information about their users. They banned them from US platforms, banned American companies from working with them, 
really quite damning. Um, then he sort of postponed it till after the inauguration. Uh, and then several months later, what are we? We're five months after the inauguration. Biden has revoked them. Uh, just said, right, no, forget all about that, which is probably the most positive news for China that we've had since Biden was elected. Um, but he said that the uh, Secretary of Commerce, Gino Raimondo, should keep a very close eye on all these applications, uh, make sure that they don't pose a risk or make check whether they are posing a risk. Uh, he's not said, oh, they're all safe. But he basically said there's no there's no evidence, which is quite, I think, quite significant. His executive order says it provides criteria for identifying software applications that may pose unacceptable risks and develops further options to protect sensitive personal data, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if only that were applied to Huawei as well to say, have we got any evidence that it poses great risks? I don't know. Uh, so far, no one has said to me, yes, the people in the UK or Australia or Canada or the US or wherever have found serious risks in Huawei equipment, except for some ropey software engineering. I think that might be the beginning of a breakthrough for Huawei. I don't expect it to come soon. It's a small step, but give it six months or a year or so, this might be a time for Huawei to breathe again in Shenzhen and say, maybe they can see a way out of all their problems. Melanie. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, very interesting points there. Um, there have been some major developments out of the US um, in the last few days, but they are putting more regulation around the use of data by these Chinese apps. So it's kind of like we're letting you in, but only slowly and only a little bit. Um, but I like what you're saying about um, Huawei in general and, you know, could this be the turnaround for them? Because maybe it could. But then again, the US still has influence beyond the president. There's the FBI, there's the CIA, there's lots of other people who we don't know what their motives are or where their feelings lie. And last week, I believe it was a delegation from Brazil actually went to the US to talk about their 5G um, launch, their equipment, their rollout in general, um, not Huawei specifically, but the delegation from Brazil, which is a Huawei supplied country and um, met with the FBI and the CIA as well as the FCC. So I read that as, okay, this is the start of the US pressuring Brazil to remove Huawei. But as you're saying, over the last few days, things have really changed and turned around. So could President Joe be the one who unifies the global telecoms and tech industry once again? <laughs> well, I think what he's done also is provoked or set about the industry going to open radio access networks, which seems to be mounting with you know great speed, uh, great velocity, uh, you know particularly in Europe, uh, surprisingly, uh, Orange and Vodafone and Telecom Italia, Telefonica, and Deutsche Telekom all collaborating to develop open RAN, and this is directly a consequence of the blocking of Huawei, of one of the three or four five maybe big vendors in the industry, which really shook the industry a lot, um, now reliant on Ericsson and Nokia with a bit of maybe Samsung. Um, so I think the industry has changed anyway. I'm not sure we're going to go back to the days of 2017 or whatever when you know Huawei and ZTE were loved and in Europe and North America and South America and elsewhere. I think those days have gone, but I think we're going to see 
much more diverse industry over the next few years. Um, certainly, people are testing Open RAN. Telecom Italia is doing a lot of trials. Um, and I think if it's proven that it works, even if it only works, you know, nearly as efficiently as working with the big operators, with the big vendors, I mean, um, I think that will be good enough. And I think they've seen that's a way forward. So I think we've seen a big change over the last year or two. Um, Trump has changed the industry more than he ever understood, I think. That's a very, very good point, Alan. Um, well, thank you very much. Uh, later in this episode, we will be speaking to Ivo Ivanov, the CEO of DKIX International. Um, but before we hear from him, uh, Natalie has the latest data center headlines. Um, and in the roundup this week, annual mergers and acquisitions are now on track to reach a new record for 2021, and it's only June. Um, and that's down to the biggest data center acquisition ever seen. So Natalie, over to you. Thanks, Mel. Yeah, so <clears throat> we're going to start off with the uh, Fiberlight story. Um, so Fiberlight actually confirmed the completion of its uh, fiber expansion in the greater El Paso, Texas market, uh, with a new point of present at the MDC El Paso data center. Now, the new link is able to connect El Paso with Laredo, McKellen and Brownsville. And according to the company, it now provides a fourth border crossing to support terabits of bandwidth from Mexico to Dallas. Uh, in other news, uh, Alibaba Cloud says it will build its first data center in the Philippines by the end of the year to extend the reach of its services, which includes elastic compute, databases, security, machine learning and uh, data analytics. The new data center will be located uh, in the capital of Manila and will bring the company's total uh, of uh, data center availability zones to 76 um, and spread across five, uh, 25 regions globally. Uh, next, findings from Synergy Research Group showed that the $10 billion acquisition of uh, QTS Realty Trust by Blackstone, which is the biggest data center acquisition uh, to date, means that the annual value of data center mergers and acquisitions is moving towards a new record in 2021. Uh, so, you know, less than six months into the new year and well over $6 billion uh, in deals has already been closed and we're moving to and are moving to completion. Uh, so with this uh, QTS transaction, uh, it will take the total uh, to close to $17 billion um, and it's set to surpass the record in 2020, which broke the uh, $30 billion barrier. Uh, according to analyst John uh, Dinsdale over at Synergy Research Group, um, the almost inexhaustible demand for data center capacity has led to a drive to find new sources of capital funding and there continues to be a long list of willing investors. Um, so certainly probably not the last deal we're going to hear about this year. Now, last up, uh, we have Australia's DCI data centres who uh, have been granted a um, New Zealand Overseas Investment Office consent, which will enable them to purchase land for a major new data centre in Auckland. Uh, the first of its kind in the country, DCI AKLL01, which is what it's called, uh, will be located on a site at Westgate in northwest Auckland and will use DCI's uh, standardised design for uh, a cloud data centre. The size and power available to the facility has not yet been confirmed and there is no confirmed opening date as of yet, but we will be keeping an eye on that. Uh, but that's it from me. Thanks, Natalie. Um, well, next up in today's episode, we are putting our questions to Ivo Ivanov, who is the CEO of DKIX International. Ivo, welcome to the Digital Digest and thank you so much for joining us. 
Melanie, thank you so much for having me here and uh, a very warm welcome uh, to the entire audience of your podcast. I'm excited uh, having uh, uh, this interview because uh, we have a lot of things to share uh, and uh, the things are exciting because of the exciting times we're all in of a fully digitalized world everywhere for everybody. Definitely, yes. Um, and you're right, there are a lot of exciting things to talk about this week. Um, and specifically this week, there are even more because um, obviously, as we discussed earlier in the episode, we had the internet, the global internet outage on Tuesday. Um, and we're going to cover a few topics today. But before we get into those other topics, let's just talk about this outage because, um, as the team said, this really highlights the concentration of connectivity infrastructure. Um, and I wonder, what's your take on the events of Tuesday and what's needed to make global infrastructure more resilient? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, they are outages like this because uh, infrastructure is infrastructure, physics are physics. Uh, and I don't want to comment on uh, single organizations um, because uh, we are not aware probably of all details. Uh, what I want to comment on is uh, the obvious need of uh, uh, further um, development uh, of infrastructure, localizing infrastructure, building bigger pipes and creating more and more um, uh, internet exchanges. So this is what uh, DICX has committed to um, um, running in, in, in different um, regions, making sure um, that um, the distribution of traffic can be more and more localized, uh, avoiding congestion on uh, the big uh, global highways, um, uh, hand in hand uh, with the localization of applications and content. And um, uh, as, as a remark here, we are very proud of um, having all DICX um, internet exchange and interconnection platforms um, um, running smoothly at um, all times. Um, this is um, something uh, we are uh, very proud of uh, also for one important reason, because the, the more than 2,300 networks connected globally to our platforms, um, they can reliably plan with. Um, and this is a very um, um, huge value. As I said, um, the more um, infrastructure can be localized, the, the, the better for the entire industry. Um, so in terms of um, regional outages, uh, traffic can be easily rerouted uh, and uh, local effects uh, will be minimized uh, to a zero. Indeed, yes, and fingers crossed. Um, well, that brings us um, nicely onto the main topic that we're going to be talking about today, um, because global connectivity is entering a new era now, um, and there's definitely consensus that um, a new space race is emerging. Um, and we're going to talk today about connectivity in space, specifically how and why a universal internet could soon be possible. Um, now, we've all heard of SpaceX, um, but DKIX has a Space IX program. So let's start there. By way of introduction, what is Space IX and how and when did the idea come about? Uh, thanks for the question, and uh, uh, the topic is um, uh, very, um, um, very exciting one. Um, the DICX program, and we call this Space Interconnection or Space IX, um, stays uh, um, to support uh, or stays for the support uh, the infrastructure need of, um, needs of the, the whole range of space network operators, in particular of course, uh, the LEO satellite operators um, with their terrestrial interconnection needs, the interconnection needs of their ground stations, providing them with an interconnection solution that enables access to terrestrial content, cloud and application networks, they can easily distribute uh, 
through uh, um, their space network. So um, DECIS Internet Exchanges um, um, unite all type of networks, as I already mentioned previously, more than 2,300. So serving um, the interconnection needs of the LEO satellite operators will give them a, 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 a dramatic um, increase of attractive um, direct access to, to content, uh, applications, uh, uh, cloud connectivity, they can pass uh, through to the end customers. So um, end customers using this type of new access, digital services and internet access technology, they can enjoy perfect performance from day one. Uh, and this is um, what I believe um, is one of the, the main um, advantages this technology will bring uh, uh, on the table, uh, enabling rural areas, enabling areas where um, um, terrestrial developments of fiber infrastructure or 5G infrastructure are not easy to be justified business plan wise. So in this case, um, these regions and especially the users in these regions, they can finally um, get an affordable solution um, um, to access uh, digital services. And uh, we all know that um, access to digital services today um, requires um, the lowest latency possible and the highest bandwidth possible because the applications are so hungry for bandwidth and they are so latency sensitive. So um, I really hope um, that um, in the near future we will see um, a, a, a huge collaboration between different uh, DICX platforms around the globe um, and uh, um, Leo satellite operators. This is um, the mandate of our space interconnection program. Fascinating. Um, well, how, before we come on to you, how that kind of integrates with the wider um, interconnection assets, um, just going back to latency, what kind of latency would actually be possible on this infrastructure? Um, there are different measurements, but I, I believe uh, uh, the, 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 the valid point here is um, that they can uh, provide the latency uh, in the range of uh, 35 milliseconds and better. Um, this is uh, a very important range because within this range uh, we can enjoy uh, applications uh, uh, like um, uh, live uh, video streaming in, in a very good uh, um, definition um, if it comes to um, the quality of the video and of course um, um, audio and the resolution of course. Um, um, online gaming can be supported uh, uh, in, a, in a high quality way. Uh, but also um, collaborative work applications uh, uh, are um, um, working uh, uh, fine uh, in this um, uh, latency range. So in other words, all of the, the latency sensitive uh, applications um, um, as we know them today um, will be handled um, very smoothly. And, and this is one of the main reasons why I believe this technology is badly needed in all those um, areas where we do not have uh, a variety of different offerings if it comes to broadband and the low latency internet access. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, so how will SpaceIX integrate with the company's existing global interconnection assets um, and will it extend their reach? Yeah, so this is, uh, um, this is uh, um, there is a range of, of different options um, um, we, can, uh, we can offer to the LEO um, uh, service and satellite operators. Um, different service options um, in a sense uh, that we can cover cloud connectivity through our uh, cloud exchange. 
um, to deliver um, uh, cloud connectivity to the end users through the network of the layer satellite operators on a, on a very resilient, uh, uh, secure and low latency path. The same is valid, for instance, for um, applications based on Microsoft 365 and Microsoft Dynamics, which is extremely important for enterprises around the globe. Um, DICX um, uh, um, has a program uh, created with uh, Microsoft, the so-called uh, Microsoft Azure Peering Service, which is layer two direct connectivity between uh, Microsoft uh, 365 and Microsoft Dynamic Applications and uh, um, the using entity, uh, in this case, the enterprise. Um, creating this um, interconnection under the DICX space uh, um, interconnection program will lead to the result that all enterprises using Leo satellite access, they can enjoy a perfect um, M365 and Microsoft Dynamics performance, um, which is crucial for their operations and crucial for the experience of their um, staff members and uh, their partners and customers. Um, and last but not least, uh, DigX, the DigX ecosystem stays for, um, as I mentioned earlier, the full variety of almost all different uh, um, internet and uh, digital application business models today. So, of course, um, um, the integration of uh, a LEO satellite network into our ecosystem will lead to the result um, that uh, all the CDNs, content delivery um, networks, content networks, gaming companies, etc., they will get uh, instant direct interconnection with this uh, um, um, uh, label satellite operator access networks and at the end, the users, uh, their great internet um, experience. Okay, so can you reveal who in the satellite sector that you are speaking with? Uh, we're speaking with uh, uh, players uh, who have, uh, of course, uh, um, started uh, deploying um, um, already um, their uh, LEO uh, setups uh, in the low orbit. Um, the, the names are um, well known, uh, just to mention one of those, uh, like SpaceX being one of the early adapters uh, um, uh, here. And uh, we all know that uh, they're already, uh, as of March this uh, um, year, um, around uh, 5,000 uh, boxes already in the space. Um, and uh, we will we'll, we'll see a further growth. So SpaceX uh, alone is on track to add another 11,000 uh, more uh, this year. And uh, um, um, there is public information about uh, um, uh, um, a request for permission for another 30,000 satellites, uh, uh, request for permission to the Federal Communications Commission um, in the U.S., so uh, other similar plans we, we hear from OneWeb, uh, of course, Amazon's OneWeb, Telesat, uh, and the JW, the Chinese state-owned company. So uh, all these parties uh, are uh, partners invited uh, um, to participate in the, the DigX space interconnection platform. And with some of them, um, uh, we have uh, already uh, detailed discussions and uh, are in a process uh, to create uh, the first interconnections. I cannot um, touch on specific names here, but uh, uh, there is more to come uh, in terms of life, light interconnection in action very soon in the course of the next month. 
Well, we definitely look forward to hearing more on all those points. Um, and it's, it really is fair to say, um, as we've mentioned throughout this interview, that satellites really had its moment over the last year. Um, and this week here at Capacity, for example, we hosted our first ITW webinar for 2021, which is called the Emerging Space Race. Um, and that session looked at exactly this point. Space is on track to overhaul the global connectivity landscape. Um, so, Eva, what do you think this means for other connectivity types? For example, subsea cables that are vulnerable to interception or fibre that's so difficult and expensive to lay. I mean, it's doubtful that either of those will become obsolete, but will satellites become supplementary um, or a point of competition? I think the different connectivity types will complement each other. Um, each type um, has its advantages and disadvantages, which means that depending on the infrastructure and the environmental conditions, the right choice can be made. The, the entire, the, almost the entire ecosystem thus becomes stronger and healthier. For example, a satellite network provider can bring connectivity to remote locations with greater economic feasibility and a better potential business case than most other types of network operator can. I, I already mentioned this uh, earlier because uh, laying down fiber in specific regions is, is uh, um, uh, very expensive. Um, or building up a, a strong 5G network doesn't work everywhere for because of landscape uh, um, um, given uh, reasons or uh, uh, business um, given reasons. Um, having said uh, this, I want to also touch on one example for a very collaborative uh, um, approach possible. I believe uh, that uh, the satellite, um, LEO satellite um, um, network assets can uh, be also used to enhance uh, the connectivity on the 5G sector as well, serving uh, um, different uh, uh, 5G setups and uh, towers with a redundant uh, uh, backbone um, infrastructure next to the terrestrial one. So this is just an example that in this case, LEO satellite uh, infrastructure will not compete with the 5G infrastructure, just the opposite is the case. It will make it stronger and uh, more resilient. Excellent. Um, and we have definitely, as mentioned again earlier, learned lessons on resiliency this week. Um, well, just to come on to um, the kind of consumer connectivity as well, this is going to enable now. Um, in 2019, a report by STL, so obviously pre-pandemic, um, but it said that 47% of people don't have access to the internet. Um, now, those figures have changed over last year, needs must, um, but given what's happening at the moment and everything else we have spoken about so far, how do you see that figure changing over the coming, let's say, five years? Yes, this is, uh, this is actually uh, <laughs> a very challenging question because uh, it's really hard to predict. They're really hard to predict because uh, we all know uh, what is uh, um, now in process to happen. We see digitalization everywhere. At DICX, we talk about new era for interconnection, um, including the demand for different interconnection uh, um, services. We're excited by this at the same time. This makes it so hard to predict. Um, there, there are, of course, uh, uh, numbers uh, we, we have in our record. Uh, so, for example, according to Statista, as of January 2021, uh, there were 4.6, almost 4.7 billion active internet users worldwide. That is almost 60% of the global population. Of this total, around 90%, uh, this means uh, 4.3 billion, uh, they do access the internet via mobile devices. 
Um, so uh, now we see how important it is it to um, to make sure that the access of the internet through mobile devices, disregarding where the users are, will cover the main two needs: bandwidth and the lowest latency possible because every single millisecond counts so in in in, in my dickies words latency is the new currency and this uh, currency becomes extremely important for um, the mobile service um, um, operators uh, given these numbers uh, another one according to the research and um, and, and markets uh, statistics land-based um, uh, wireless um, only Covers uh, roughly 20%, 12, sorry, 12% of the globe. So, um, um, this institution um, also forecasts that global small satellite um, market size is projected to grow, um, to grow from 2.8 billion in 2020 to 7.1 billion by 2025. This is, uh, this is amazing. And we are talking about the Leo. Um, industry in um, this case, because the different um, um, satellites are, are, are not significantly bigger than a shoebox. So, Melanie, you see that um, this type of growth in terms of market potential, but also demand on our planet needs the best infrastructure innovation and development possible. And uh, with our space interconnection program, we want to support uh, one um, newcomer uh, as the Leo satellite uh, infrastructure in the best way possible to enable their networks um, um, with the interconnection, the users demand in the end. And summarizing all this, I would say there is new hope from the space. Uh, as uh, we have a new hope uh, almost everywhere where infrastructure is built, because having Robust digital infrastructure, and this includes not Leo satellite, um, not uh, only not the DKX interconnection platforms only, but all the participants in this great industry, um, like data center operators, um, uh, fiber operators, uh, carriers, ISPs, uh, uh, cloud operators, uh, subsea uh, cable operators, and 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 more and more coming. Um, this is all about having robust infrastructure everywhere will create a better quality of life. And uh, this is uh, all about our industry. The mandate of our industry is to improve the quality of life of people, giving them equal and great access to digital services. Fantastic. Those are very inspiring words, Eva. I'm sure they're going to um, touch a lot of hearts there. Um, and you're right on, in terms of the mandate of the industry. Um, and I feel it has evolved as well over, especially over the last year, and there's been a global focus, um, really a magnification of that mandate. Um, and it's great to see that so many, well, the whole industry really is picking up that baton and not just making business opportunities out of this, um, but bringing new social opportunities to those who aren't necessarily you know, working in the wholesale industry. Um, and you're right, this is certainly an area of hyper growth for all infrastructure types. Um, and on that note, um, what's your closing message for wholesale connectivity suppliers at this time? You know, people who are doing business during this time. We have to work uh, very close together. I think partnership uh, is uh, definitely better uh, than competition because uh, the market size and the projection, prediction for growth in the future are so big and uh, the potential is so enormous 
that um, nobody can serve the market alone. We need a lot of collaboration to make sure that the world's population get access to information and to um, high performance uh, internet at the best way possible for using today's and tomorrow's digital content at applications with the best experience possible. I am so much looking forward to meeting a lot of partners and a lot of friends and industry stakeholders, of course, being part of the, this year's ITW. Well, I'm sure they're very excited to meet you as well. Um, I know that we're excited to speak to you again, hopefully in the not too distant future. Um, but Ivo, it's been great to speak with you today and thank you so much for all the insight that you've shared. You're very welcome. The pleasure was mine. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Thanks to the team for bringing us the latest on all those stories. Thanks to Evo, and thanks also to everybody who listened. We will be back next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, you can catch up with all the latest from across the industries over at capacitymedia.com. Also online, you will find the latest issue of the magazine and details of our events calendar for 2021. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week. Take care and catch you next time.